What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN on this leap year day. We can only say that every four years or so. Hey, it, this is program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Have you got a question about the Catholic faith? Well, don't wait until the next February 29th because that's too long. Get that question answered on today's program. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us in, um, hmm, starts with a D, starts with a D. Djibouti? Sure. If you're listening in Djibouti, well, then you'll want to dial 1 and then 205 205- Two seven one two nine eight five, or you can send us an email. The address for that ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming right now on both platforms. Just put your question in the comments box, if you would, please. Rich will see that once you've hit the send button, and then uh, he'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can answer your question on today. Today's Leap Year program. Again, our phone number 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Great. How are you? You know, I'm doing decent. Thank you. I think we've we've gone past fake spring here in the South, and now we're back to, oh yeah, winter. Well, you know, but oh yeah, winter in Alabama is not that big a deal. It is not that big (laughs) deal. After coming here from Minnesota, let me tell you, very glad to be here. A fascinating open-ended question from Jacob, who asked this question via YouTube. How can you know God's plan for your life? Um, Yeah, I appreciate that uh, very much. So there is a sense in which uh, we couldn't possibly know God's plan for my life. I mean, for example, you know, there is a day on which I'm going to die. Yes, that's that's you know written into God's plan and God's providence. He knows that day and He's organizing the universe with you know that tiny little detail in mind. There's no way I'm going to ever know that. I'm not going to know that. Um, you know, I, I'm going to be saved or not on the last day. Again, I don't know that in advance. There are a lot of things about my destiny that are going to remain forever hidden to me until I get there. Um, But there are other things about the Lord's plan for my life that I can certainly know. And really, there's only one that is pertinent, one that we really need to know, and that is the question of our vocation. And what do we mean by vocation? Well, in the Catholic faith, a vocation is a a settled form of life, uh, an institution, if you will, that I can give myself to for the sake of the common good. It's not for my good alone, but it's for the sake of society or the church or the family or whatnot. Oh, okay. So some of those vocations that are that are constitutive of Catholic identity would be priesthood, for example. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, priesthood is, it's a, definitely a settled form of life. I don't get to make up what priesthood means. It's already defined for me. Sure. And a man who's called to the priesthood enters it for one specific purpose, and that is to serve the people of God by celebrating the sacraments worthily 
and teaching and governing the people of God as well. And so uh, somebody who becomes a priest is, is signing up for that job description. Um, you know, their constitutive vocation of the Catholic faith is marriage. Marriage is a sacrament in the Catholic Church, meaning it's a sacred sign of Christ's love for the Church. It's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Those who enter into that institution can do so worthily and witness uh, Christ uh, to the world and, you know, for the sake of the salvation of the world, and also, but principally, so that they can raise up offspring in the fear and admonition of the Lord and, and in fact, make new Catholics, little baby Catholics, right? And you don't, like, what well, I heard a priest one time admonishing his congregation to have babies on the grounds that, uh, don't you know where priests come from? You know, they <laughs> typically come from Catholic homes, so let's get about the business of making babies who can become priests, who can serve the people of God in that capacity. Uh, if you sign up for the vocation of marriage, you don't get to define what it means. Its its meaning, its definition is already defined for you. You can you can agree to that institution or not, and you may have that calling on your life. Religious life would be another vocation. These uh-huh. are people who are called uh, to to take the evangelical councils, the pro- the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, which is the objectively most perfect way of sanctity. Maybe not perfect for everybody, but objectively perfect. Uh huh. And witness what true consecration, radical consecration to God, uh, looks like. And they are, even though the religious may live a life that is seemingly cut off from the people of God, like if they're a cloistered monk or nun, um, and yet even the most cloistered and isolated hermit uh, still does that for the sake of the common good, for the sake of the people of God. And even knowing that people like that exist can be a tremendous encouragement to the rest of us in the path for holiness, even Mm -hmm. more so when those religious are perhaps um, uh, mulling about, you know, in our midst a bit more like the, like the, you know, Dominican and Franciscan types that, that really do have a vocation to go out directly and serve the sacraments and preach to the people. Mm -hmm. So these are, these are vocations. Uh, You need to discern your vocation. And uh, uh, it's not a purely subjective thing. I asked my, my former bishop, Robert Baker, one time, I said, I said, Bishop Baker, how did you know you were called to be a priest? He said, well, that was easy. My bishop ordained me. <laughs> you know, there's, a, there's an objective quality to it, you know, that the church has said, okay, you have this gift, this charism, this disposition, we recognize it, and, and here you go. You know, uh, to a certain extent, marriage also takes that character. In, in, in uh, uh, culture long by, it would have been typical for young people to seek the counsel of adults in their lives, not just go off and make this decision on their own. Today, we have kind of a relic of that requiring uh, those who propose to be married uh, to go through some sort of marriage preparation classes. Sure, to Really sure. make sure that they, they can do that. And if a priest saw something in a young person that said, you know, I don't think marriage is the right choice for you right now, he'd really be duty-bound to tell them, yeah, I don't think you're called to this. So it's not something that we decide just for our own, but we discern uh, within the community of God, mm. the people of God, relying on wise counsel. And a priest can indeed and, and should do that if, if he sees during that marriage preparation period that there's something just not quite right yet. Absolutely. Like, you know, what if a couple came to a priest and said, well, you know, we're, we're into this concept of open marriage. We don't, we're not into this fidelity and, and lifelong. He would be like, sorry, guys, y'all, don't, y'all not ready for this commitment. We're not going to go through with this. Very good. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your uh, question there, Jacob. Glad that you're watching us uh, on YouTube. That actually came in day before yesterday. In a moment, we're going to get to the phones here. We'll begin with Kevin in Dallas. We have a couple of lines open for you as well. If you have a question, Question for Dr. David Anders here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It is called to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
It's called the Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Let me tell you about something beautiful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. Now, why do I always say that? Let me tell you about something beautiful, because that goes back to the day that Mother Angelica founded the religious catalog. She said, I think we should share things of beauty, uh, holy reminders was her phrase that she would say, you know, this is a, a great way to help you remember why you believe what you believe. So that goes to every item in EWTN's religious catalog, including the St. Francis gold embossed wooden plaque. This beautiful image of St. Francis printed on thick wooden plaque made in Italy. It combines the most modern technologies of color transfer with ancient artisan techniques to create a unique and beautiful work of art. Uh, This skillful use of golden glazes along with the raised effective detail lines and the brilliant use of colors combined in a distinctive style. It's sure to foster an appreciation for the great masterpieces of sacred art. Now, this particular plaque is about an inch thick. It's about seven and a half inches by 10 inches, gilded edges, and a hook on the back for hanging. If you were to type in uh, St. Francis gold embossed wooden plaque, or even just St. Francis plaque, I'm sure you'll see it. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com complete with a built-in search engine, EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Kevin in Dallas, watching us on YouTube. Hello, Kevin. What's on your mind today, sir? Hello, Dr. Anders. First, I just want to say I really appreciate your program. I had a question to you about uh, the sin against the Holy Ghost. In the Summa Theologica, Thomas Aquinas lists six kinds of sin against the Holy Ghost, including despair, uh, presumption, and penitence, and so forth. And he says that God only sometimes forgives these sins, and only by a miracle. Uh, and I was just wondering, does the Catholic Church still teach this today, regarding the unforgivable sin? And yeah, if yeah. so, how could that be reconciled with the idea that like many Catholics say today that many, if not all, may well be saved? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, the the essence of the unforgivable sin is final impenitence, uh, namely that you 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 know you you hold out against God till the very last breath, and what the way I interpret Aquinas, and you can find this teaching repeated in the Catechism of Pius X, is the tradition looks at okay what are the conditions that could lead a person to that kind of final impenitence. And so presumption would be one of them, for sure. example. If you have the idea that I don't need to repent, and you, 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 that's presumption, and you maintain that presumption, well, you're also going to then maintain your own impenitence. Um, if, you, if, you, uh, if, you say, if you remain settled in despair of the possibility of salvation, and you never get rid of that despair, it's also going to lead to impenitence. So mm-hmm. I would see those six, those six uh, criteria, if you will, not criteria, sort of six constituents of impenitence, uh-huh. as a— uh, really culminating in that one act of final impenitence. Okay. Now, what uh, does the Catholic Church still teach that? Well, yes, to be sure, it still holds that that repentance and faith are necessary for salvation. How does that square with the idea or the expectation of the hope or maybe the prayer that all might be saved? Well, uh, if Catholics pray that all might be saved, that can only mean that we pray that all come to repentance. There's no other way to be saved. If you don't have repentance towards sin, then you're not going to be saved. Oh, there it is. Kevin, is that helpful for you, sir? 
Yeah, that was helpful. I was just curious, since like Aquinas seemed to use the language saying that God only sometimes by a miracle uh, heals those with those sins, if maybe just the Church take a more optimistic view, perhaps. Well, let me, let me jump in on that one particular point. Aquinas is teaching that to overcome uh, one of these faults requires supernatural grace. Well, that is absolutely Catholic dogma. It's, but and not just these sins, but but any mortal sin. Yeah. Like to move from the state of sin to the state of righteousness to the state of sanctifying grace or theosis is by definition a supernatural activity. And that that's not just true for those who are who are in, in, impenitent. It, I mean, it, it's it's really true for every category of mortal sin that to move from that state of death to the state of life does require supernatural agency. There you go. Kevin, thanks so much for your call from Big D. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or perhaps you would like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. In any event, here's the phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. You may remember this from a couple of days ago. This is uh, an email from Sean. He says, I think you might have misspoken recently when you answered a caller by saying that there wasn't any specific instruction to pray in Jesus's name. You remember that? Yeah. Uh, He says, you are correct in pointing out that God will hear prayers that may not have such a request included, but Jesus does recommend it in John 14, 13. Yep, I'm well aware of John 14. So here's, here's, let me explain my context. This fellow called the show... And he was uh, kind of agitated, a little bit nervous at the uh-huh. idea that if he didn't, if he didn't append the words, literally state the phrase in Jesus's name, to every prayer that he uttered, the prayer would somehow fall flat. Okay. Now the question is, is there anything in the tradition or anything in sacred scripture that would that would lead us to that conclusion? And my position is no. the 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 idea of praying or acting in Jesus's name occurs many times in the New Testament. But it is entirely unclear to me, and I think it ought to be unclear to you, that what is intended by the phrase in Scripture is a liturgical formula, right? So Christ can say, for example, if anyone receives this child in my name, you know, then he receives me. Um, or many will come in my name and saying, I am he, but you ought not to listen to them. You'll, you'll find the phrase in my name used in a lot of different contexts, not all of them with respect to prayer. Okay. And it, it, the way I read the text, it seems to me that that is more an appeal to be operating within Christ's authority or for Jesus' sake, not specifying a particular liturgical prayer formula that you must verbally articulate. And even in John, where the language is more explicit about praying in Jesus' name, again, it's not at all clear that John is saying, here's a verbal formula that you have to, that you have to express out loud. Uh, rather, he may simply be saying, you know, you're, 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 you're standing within Christ. If you're baptized, you become a member of his body, you're acting as his agent, that sort of thing, uh-huh. rather than here's a liturgical formula that you have to repeat with your mouth. Mm, okay. Hope that's helpful for you, Sean. Thanks so much uh, for your email. Called to communion here on EWTN. Gerald sent us an email, says, The Office of Reading recently said the church was built on the foundation of Peter's testimony. This is not true and is a Protestant invention. Scripture clearly says, quote, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone or capstone. Another verse quotes Jesus telling Peter he will build his church on him. I am confused. Please help Gerald. 
Yeah, thanks, Gerald. I really appreciate the question. So I don't have the particular text from the Office of Readings in front of me that you're citing, but I know the Office of Readings generally, and there are often citations from the Church Fathers. So my suspicion is that we're looking at a particular quotation from one of the Church Fathers, and, you know, the Church Fathers say a lot of things about Matthew 16, 18, and Christ building the Church on the foundation of St. Peter, and of course they, they said these things centuries before the Protestant Reformation, when the question of Peter's identity became a polemical issue, right? Yeah. And so if, a, if one of the fathers of the, ch- of the Church, for example, calls specific attention to Peter's act of faith as a sort of foundational thing, that, we sh- that, that shouldn't be held to be somehow in contradiction to the doctrine of the foundation of Peter's office as the first pope or the bishop of Rome or the vicar of Christ. So they're just not in competition in that way. You have to place the, co- the text within its historical context. And again, if, if this was you know, taken from St. Augustine, for example, he's not writing uh, you know, in the context of 16th century polemics over the papacy. Okay. Appreciate that. And thank you so much uh, for your email. Call to communion here on EWTN. A couple lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Suzanne is a first-time caller from St. Louis, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Suzanne. A blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Thank you. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Um, The other day, somebody shared on Facebook a meme that shows the good thief on the crucifix, and it's basically looking up at Jesus, and Jesus is saying to him, you know, today you will be with me in paradise. So the people that shared it basically made the comment of, you know, he all he did was believe at that moment and made it to paradise, and without a baptism, no communion, no confirmation, no this, no going to confession, no this, and all it took was um, for him just to believe in him at that moment. How do I respond to yeah. a meme like that? Absolutely, absolutely. I really appreciate the question. So the the meme radically misstates the true disagreement between Protestants and Catholics about the nature of salvation. Because it construes the Catholic position as if Catholics were saying, in order to go to heaven, there is a checklist of behaviors you must you must check off, right? You you have to you you, you must check off these sacraments. You must check off these good works in order to get to heaven. That's that's not the Catholic position, and it's a caricature of the Catholic position. Nor does this argument really accurately represent what's at stake in the Protestant position. So let me give you what historically is at stake between Protestants and Catholics. And this, this illustration, this, this meme, does not capture the difference. Okay. Um, the Protestant position is that a person is saved um, not because of anything that they've done or because of anything intrinsic to their character or personality, but rather that God forgives them for Christ's sake and imputes Jesus' righteousness to them. So that when God looks at the soul, instead of seeing their soul stained with sin, he actually mm-hmm. sees the righteousness of Christ. As if, you know, I, I've got a bank account with a negative balance, and Jesus has a bank account with an infinite balance, and God is content to change the names on the bank account and count Jesus's positive account as if it were mine and my negative account as if it were Jesus's. And the, the, the technical term for this is imputation, that God imputes Christ's righteousness to Jesus. The Catholic position is very different. The Catholic position is that Jesus brings my account from negative to positive. 
right? That he does. I don't just get his bank account, but I'm actually enriched, right? That my that my interior moral condition con, condition is fundamentally changed, and uh, and righteousness becomes my my very character, right? That the love of God is poured into my heart, and so that I effectively love God and love neighbor. And so when God says to me, well done, good and faithful servant, he's not doing it just for Jesus' sake alone. He's doing it because I really am a good and faithful servant. I've been made a good and faithful servant. And the, the criterion here is not that I have performed a lot of actions, whether sacramental actions or, or charitable actions or what have you. Mm-hmm. It's because my heart is now characterized by the love of God and the love of neighbor, which is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, 8 says the love of God and the love of neighbor fulfills the law. And Paul goes on to say, you can do all these things. You can give to the poor. You can have prophecies and speak in tongues and, you know, whatever else you want to talk about. You have faith, for that matter. But if you don't have love, you're nothing. If you have love, you have the whole show. If you don't have love, you have nothing, regardless of whatever else is going on. So what's it for for a Catholic? The way he sees the the justification of St. Dismas on the cross is that God gave Dismas grace that transformed his character, moved him from the state of sin to the state of righteousness, such that he effectively loved God and neighbor, and that he was justified, i.e. declared righteous by God, because of that transformation. It was God's gracious activity that brought it about, but nevertheless, there's something intrinsic to Dismas's character so that he can be accounted righteous by God, not for Jesus' sake alone, but because he himself has actually become righteous. Now, I would like to dispute this idea that Dismas did not do any good works. That's poppycock. That's hogwash. So what did Dismas do? Well, first of all, he has an act of contrition. Yep. He he definitely demonstrates humility. I am getting what my deeds deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, he performs one of the spiritual works of mercy, which is admonishing the sinner. He turns to the other thief on the cross and tells him, you know, gives him what for. Yeah. Um, and he definitely demonstrates the virtue of hope. Right, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Right, all of these in Catholic theology are meritorious deeds, for which he is owed a recompense. So it's just patently false to say that he did nothing. And then finally, there's absolutely no evidence that the faith that Dismas uh, evidenced was Lutheran faith. Was the idea that you know Dismas was trusting that irrespective of his moral condition, that God would accept him for Jesus' sake alone. The, 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 the story itself just doesn't delve into those kind of metaphysical issues one way or the other. And, uh, and so the, your, 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 your Protestant polemicist on, on TikTok or whatever is pressing the story way, way, way beyond what the narrative actually says and totally bypassing what's really at issue between Protestants and Catholics. Suzanne, thanks so much for your question. Here's a quick email from Sue. She says, I thought that when I go to confession and do penance, I am absolved of those sins forever. But will those same sins be judged again by Jesus? Or will he be judging just the remaining sins that I didn't confess? Yeah, so if you are absolved of sin uh, and you have done penance for it, then uh, you're done. That's it. And, And remember that on the last day, uh, you know, the verdict is not just, you know, bad, bad, bad. It can also be good, 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 well done, good and faithful servant. And the purpose of the final judgment is precisely that Christ be vindicated in the very sphere in which he was dishonored. And that means he will give honor to those who honored him, and he'll give wrath and punishment to those that dishonored him. And so the verdict may very well be, in your case, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. There's a judgment, but it's a positive judgment, not a negative yeah. one. And no, you're not, if something is forgiven, it doesn't come up again. You don't get you don't get judged a second time 
uh, when you've already pronounced judgment on yourself through your act of contrition and penance. Sue, thanks so much uh, for your email. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to talk with Pamela, a first-time caller in Toledo listening on the great Annunciation Radio. We have lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We have two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We are roughly a third of the way through our Lenten journey and some of the great features that you hear here on EWTN Radio. Well, that would include a wonderful daily feature, uh, Lent Today with Father Benedict Rochelle, or about two minutes long, two and a half minutes long. Uh, you'll hear them all the way through Easter Sunday timeless messages from our uh, dear friend, Father Groeschel of Happy Memory. Also, this year's Lenten Reflections, recorded in uh, Our Lady of Walsingham, England, uh, reflecting on the spiritual richness of the season. You can check that out the Sundays of Lent, 6 a.m. and 11.30 p.m. And, of course, a great series, Lent, A Season of Grace, with Father Cedric Pasenia. Check that out Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern, all the Sundays of Lent, only on EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones here at 833-288-EWTN. Pamela, a first-time caller in Toledo, listening on the great Annunciation Radio. Hello, Pamela. What's on your mind today? Hi. I've actually just tuned into your show yesterday, and I was like, oh, I've got a call. My question is, so I'm Catholic. I'm married to a Catholic. Um, but his faith, I don't. It, it's strong, but it's like he almost picks and chooses what he wants from it. And my question is, given that it's the Lenten season, as a wife, even mother, because my children are kind of seeing the trend that he's, you know, leading, um, how much of an obligation is it for me to make sure that they're, you know, like Ash Wednesday, going to Mass, getting ashes, you know, following the the meal guidelines for, for fasting, and then again, as we come on to Holy Friday, you know, mostly the fasting or the, the giving up of something or transforming of yourself during this time. That concept is, isn't respected by my husband. So what do I do? Where do I stand? Okay, yeah, thanks. Okay, so with your husband, now, it, is this just with respect to your husband or other people in your household as well that you're asking? Oh, Pamela, we're losing your connection, but I, I believe she was concerned about her children as well. Children as well. Okay, all right. So so with respect to the husband, here's my, my question, and it really depends. Um do you think that you could influence your husband to follow the church's law on fasting and abstinence without embittering him? Mm. And a, a lot of times, wives can exercise a pretty significant influence over their husbands and get them to do what they want, but sometimes it's at the cost of embittering them. Can you do it without embittering him? If you can do it without embittering him, then I would say go for it. You know, there is a there is a there's a work of mercy in the Catholic tradition called admonishing the sinner. Uh-huh. Uh, however, we don't hold that Catholics should go around just admonishing every sinner every day about everything, right? That, that the thing has to be serious, and the person you're admonishing 
needs to be in a position where they're likely to listen to you and receive you're the, mode. And, yeah, receive mode. And you're the person who's best to make the admonition. Now, yeah. if those conditions are not met and you go admonishing people, what's going to happen is instead of moving them closer to righteousness and virtue, you're going to alienate them more. That's always a judgment call. It's always a judgment call as to where what your position is. So you ask yourself, where where is the greater danger? I, personally, I think that you know not to follow the church's teaching is bad about fasting and abstinence, but worse would be not to follow it and to become embittered. Or, you know, if you follow it, but with a really angry and hateful spirit, then that's definitely not the penitence that the church is aiming at. So you're really not, you're not doing any good here, unless you can bring about a genuine spirit of contrition and penance, and there's, there's really no point in the exercise unless it has that, that interior effect. Now, you know, with respect to the children— you're in an analogous situation. You do have authority over your children in a different way, that of parent to child. And so you can definitely tell them, you know, they need to follow the church's fast. Here, if your husband's not getting on board, he may be risking scandal that his behavior is causing the children to fall into this activity. And then you might speak to him on those terms, like you're scandalizing the children. Um, but again, you have to judge in your own mind how likely am I to succeed, and how likely are my interventions to actually embitter people and move them further away? And I think you're you're better off doing nothing than uh, than just leading to embitterment. R- remember that the church teaches that sin differs from sin in gravity. Not every sin is equally bad. So, you know, all sin is sin. All sin is wrong. But we have venial and we have mortal sin, mm-hmm. and even mortal sins can differ one from another in in point of gravity. And and we also have a teaching of the church uh, in, called gradualism, which is that it's better to make incremental progress than no progress at all. Since, you, since we do have this differentiation of sins, you know, I, I don't want to choose any sin. Sure. But if I see someone who is committing, you know, a kind of venial sin, if my intervention mm-hmm. risks a more grave sin, then I, then I can step back and refrain from acting rather than provoke them into graver sin. Likewise— you know, if I can if I can move them just incrementally a little bit towards a very minor virtue. You know, I'll give you an example of this. St. Thomas Aquinas says that affability is the is kind of the first grade in the virtue of justice. Hmm. Now it's not justice. Right. It's not justice. But if you can't if you can't manage affability, you're not gonna manage the whole shooting match when it comes right. to justice. So, you know, if I have a very unjust person who's also a jerk and maybe I'm not going to get them to, you know, quit cheating on their taxes, but we might be able to help them at least acquire a bit of affability. Thomas says, that's a move worth making. You bet. All right. Appreciate your call uh, today from Toledo, and glad you're listening on the Great Annunciation Radio. Call to communion here on EWTN. Stephen is in the Woodlands in Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Stephen. A blessed Lent. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, thanks, guys. Um uh, question about what is the difference between justification and sanctification, and how do Catholics and Protestants differ on those two? Yeah, thanks. So the the way that the traditions contrast them is very different. So within Protestantism, justification and sanctification are ontologically different. That is to say, they're really different in the order of being. There's a fundamental difference between the two, if you're a Protestant. For Protestants, justification means that that uh, God declares a person to be righteous regardless of the quality of their moral life. 
Luther used the analogy of a dunghill covered with snow. Intrinsically, a person is, is, uh, is, is filthy and disgusting, but God regards them as if they were lily white for Jesus' sake. And that's what justification refers to if you're a Protestant. Sanctification for Protestants is the process by which a person goes from being the dunghill to being a little bit less of a dunghill. You never quite get all the dunghill out of you in, in Protestantism, but uh, but it's you know you're cleaning up the dunghill a little bit, becoming a better person morally. That's what they mean by sanctification. Now, okay. within within Catholicism, the understanding of the nature of salvation is salvation just is nothing other than the translation from the state of sin to righteousness. So the moral transformation is the whole show, right? There is, there's no other category other than the moral transformation. Uh, and so it, from one point of view, justification and sanctification refer to the same reality. However, as Catholics, we can distinguish a kind of notional difference between the terminology. Justification would refer to the, this, this moral transformation as it impinges on the fact of God's acceptance, so that as you move from sin to righteousness, God accepts you for the sake of the righteousness that you have acquired in Christ. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, and sanctification would be that process of transformation itself, and justification would be God's acceptance because of the transformation. But the Catholic differs from the Protestant because the Catholic doesn't believe this business about the dunghill and the snow, doesn't believe that there are two kinds of righteousness, one that's imputed and one that's infused. There's just one kind of righteousness. It is moral transformation. That's the whole show. That's what we're aiming at. Okay. Appreciate your call. Thank you so much for it. It is called a communion here on EWTN. All right, let us go to, click on this screen right here, Terry in Toledo, listening on Annunciation Radio. Terry, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, Thank you. Yes, I'm wondering, uh, in Genesis, it seems that uh, with Adam and Eve and the, the tree of good and the evil, the knowledge of evil, it, does that presuppose that evil, Satan, already exists? And <clears throat> Because where does temptation come from? And if so, where do we know about Satan? where he comes from. Okay, thanks. All right, a couple questions here we got to get to. The, the, the pre-existence of evil, the relationship of Satan to evil, uh, origin of evil. So I'm going to give you an analogy that captures the Catholic answer to this question. Um, I'm not much of a football fan, personally, uh, but I live in a state that would, would they practically give away a kidney, you know, <laughs> if they could win in football, right? I mean, the number one religion down here is SEC football, followed by the Southern Baptist Convention. I'm in Alabama. So it's impossible for me not to know some things in spite of all my best efforts about football. And I happen to, to remember that Alabama lost to Michigan this year, right? Yes. And I think they lost by seven points, 27 to 20. I believe so. All right. The question, did God create the negative seven points hmm. that led to Alabama's loss. Like, there's a negative seven-point difference there. Yeah, yeah. Did God create the negative second seven point? And you're like, Anders, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. Like, the, there is no such, there's no substance in the world called negative seven points, <laughs> right? What you have is one team that outperformed the other. The, right. the, you have a, the team is a material reality. The other team's a material reality. The negative seven is just a, is just a, a, accounting mechanism for for differentiating the relative performance of the two teams those are objective entities the negative seven is a it's just a it's just a notional fiction it's just a an abstraction we use to to describe that difference right evil in the catholic scheme of things 
is kind of like the negative seven points. It is a, it's, it's not something that has its own ontological metaphysical reality. It's not a substance like, you know, like an octopus or some other kind of, uh, pin, you know, a pinniped or some other sort of marine animal, you know. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's what we call a privation. It's the uh. lack of something. It's the absence of something. Um, what is absent? Well, it's the, what's absent here is the rectitude of soul, the rectitude of the mind that would constitute the virtuous life. Right? That's, that's what the word evil refers to. And because it's that way, it doesn't make sense to say, did God create an absence? No, God created a substance. He created the human person, right? Um, the, the lack of rectitude in the will that we call evil was something that was freely chosen by Adam and Eve. Right, so the origin of evil is in the rational will that chooses the lesser good over the greater good. That's the origin of evil. Evil itself is not a substance, not a thing in the world, so God doesn't have to create it. He doesn't create it, right? Um, and uh, now the question about the devil, is the devil evil? Well, the devil's will is evil. The devil's will is evil. And what that means is his will is habitually inclined to the wrong choice. Mm. Right, so that's what we mean by the devil being evil. Um, now, existence as such is a good, right? To exist is good, but you can exist in a certain manner in which you don't aim at the good, and that, that lack of rectitude of the will towards the good is what we mean by evil. Um, God created uh, the angels that fell, but he didn't create their act of willing, right? right? They, they themselves, for reasons that are inscrutable <clears throat> to us, um, chose to disobey God and were confirmed in those evil choices. Uh, Terry, is that helpful for you, sir? Yeah, uh, one one more question, part of that. Then, uh, is temptation of myself? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. I understand that. So temptation can certainly derive from something imminent to you. I mean, it can be, uh, you, you know, you might have, for example, um, you know, a habitual disposition to watch too much SEC football, for example. <laughs> and nobody in Alabama has got that problem, you know, but that you, hypothetically you could imagine it. That'd be something imminent with you, a temptation arising from some defect of your own personality. Um, but, uh, but temptation can arise from the outside, right? So, for example, um, let's say, you know, you're headed to Mass, and then, uh, and then you know, your buddy, you know, sidles up next to you and says, uh, you know, hey, Terry, uh, why, don't we, um, why don't we skip Mass and instead watch Michigan clobber Alabama? <laughs> right, that would be a temptation. Might play on something that's imminent to you, but the temptation as such is articulated from the outside. Could be both. Sure, uh, Terry. Thanks so much for your call from Toledo. Appreciate hearing from you today on Call to Communion here on EWTN. You may want to check out uh, Podcast Central when you get just a moment. We have a wonderful podcast. We have a lot of great podcasts, not only programs that we produce here at EWTN, but also some wonderful podcasts that are featured on that site from coast to coast. And one of those is called Catholic Feedback with uh, Keith, Keith Nestor. On the most recent episode, Keith discusses how to answer the popular gotcha question, are Catholics saved? As a former Protestant pastor, Keith explains what he used to think and what he now believes as a Catholic regarding baptism, faith, grace, obedience. What a great uh, podcast, Catholic Feedback. It's available right now on EWTN's Podcast Central, where you'll find that one and a whole lot more. Just go to EWTN.com slash 
podcasts. All right, let's go to Rick now in Missouri, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Rick. Rick is not quite ready. Let me get to this question then from Matt, who is on uh, YouTube today. He says, Dr. Anders, I have family members who are oneness Pentecostals. They believe the body of Christ was only human and only Christ's spirit is divine. So explaining the Eucharist is tough. Any tips? Um, uh, Yeah. So not only do they get the Trinity wrong, but they get the Incarnation radically wrong as well, right? So the Catholic position is that uh, uh, Christ's—we can predicate divinity of Christ's fingernails. We say these are God's fingernails, right? Um, um, And similarly, when, when Christ, the man, expires physically on the cross, we can say that God died on the cross, because Christ is a divine person, yes, right, and the union is a union of the natures, the divine and the human, in the person. So whatever the person does, is done by God and man, right? That's the Catholic position. Um, now I'm I'm not sure how this pertains. Well, maybe I do see how it pertains to the Eucharist. Your position is that, or their position is that, if the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, then mm. it can't be His soul and divinity. Maybe that's the. That's Maybe. the idea. Okay, Maybe. so here's yeah. what the Catholic position is on that. We say that the Eucharist is properly the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. And so, to that extent, we would agree with your friends. It's properly speaking the sacrament of his body and blood. What is given to us is body and blood. That's what's offered up on the cross for us. However, because the body and blood of with Christ are always united in the person, hypostatically, to the divinity— Wherever you have Christ's body and blood, you also get his, his soul and divinity to boot. This is the technical term for this is concomitance. That's a fancy way of saying they come along for the ride, uh-huh. right? Wherever you have body and blood, you have, you have soul and divinity by concomitance. That's why we say of the Eucharist that it contains Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity. Because wherever you have body and blood, you're going to have soul and divinity too, yeah. right? And that's the position. But you don't have to shy away from the... The realism of body and blood, that is, in fact, what's primarily in view when Christ says, this is my body, this is my blood. He doesn't say, this is my divinity, this is my soul. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. And so that's why we say it's properly the sacrament of his body and blood. You just happen to get soul and divinity along for the ride. Matt, thanks so much for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Now let's go to Rick, a first-time caller in Missouri, listening on the Great Covenant Network. A blessed uh, Lent to you, Rick. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, uh, first of all, let me just say I've been listening to uh, Dr. Andrews for some time and just have a great deal of appreciation and respect for uh, this show and what you're doing here. Thank you. Thank you. uh, I and and you know I'm I've been a a Lutheran pastor for over thirty years and. and now I have a fiance who is Roman Catholic, and so I, I'm, I'm trying to sort through a lot of things. I have a lot of respect for her faith, mm-hmm. but but um, I wanted to I wanted to reflect for a moment on the question of whether or not Roman Catholicism and, and Protestantism are saying two different things when it comes to. Uh, Salvation in, in Christ, um, and I, and I'm 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 going to lean on Lutheranism uh, for a reason because I 
I feel that uh, for me, it's you know has been the closest to my understanding of Scripture that, that I have found um, at this point. But I'm also learning a lot from Roman Catholicism. So here's the thing: I I look at Paul and his use of the, the faith of Abraham, and I look at James and his use of faith of Abraham as uh, really having uh, pastoral approaches to those uh, their audience. And I, when I look at listen to Paul, I I'm I'm uh, understanding that he's speaking to um, people who may have an overemphasis on the work side and an underemphasis on. Uh, you know, grace through faith in Christ. And so he places the emphasis there. Whereas James uh, may be addressing those who have overemphasized the grace side and and, and, and underemphasized uh, the, the works. And so, you know, I think it's two sides of the same coin. And I would say that the grace through faith in Christ is primary, but it's not alone. It's never alone. And that's what that's the thing I hear in Luther. You know, faith alone justifies, but faith is never alone. Um, and so there will be a righteous life that follows from that, you know, the, the good fruit um, that uh, grows on a good tree. It was a very common reflection on on Luther's part, but so I, I actually, and I, it doesn't end there for me where I see the the, the comparisons uh, instead of contrasts. Yeah, but you know that's my take. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate the question. I appreciate the point of view. I appreciate I th- what I take to be the ecumenical spirit in which the comment is made that you're really looking for points of commonality between. Catholic and Protestant, and you're contrasting Luther and James as, as sort of typologies for Protestant and Catholic, and, and saying they're really coming from the same point of view, and, and so do we Lutherans and we Catholics. And I, I appreciate that, and I thank you. Um, I, I agree and disagree. I agree that Luther and—excuse me—I agree that Paul and James do not disagree about the nature of salvation. I agree about that. Um, but I don't agree with the way you've characterized the difference, okay, and, and what it implies about the supposed difference between Catholics and and Lutherans. The fundamental difference between the Lutheran tradition and the Catholic tradition, the fundamental, is not so much about the place of works. It's what we mean by the word righteousness. And and I'm sure you're aware from your studies in Lutheranism, in 1518, Luther preached a sermon called Two Kinds of Righteousness. Two Kinds of Righteousness. It's also the thesis of, uh, of the 1520 treatise on the freedom of a Christian, uh, you find it in the Disputation Against Scholastic Theology, and of course it's, it's reflected in all the Lutheran catechisms and creeds like the Augsburg Confession and the and Luther's Catechism, etc. And and the two kinds of righteousness that Luther postulates are there is a kind of in, there's a kind of uh, um, uh, you know there's an exterior righteousness, the the righteousness of behaviors that take place in the world that might be adjudicated by civil justice. Uh, but then there is a righteousness that Luther maintains uh, takes place only in the interior life, and it is constituted not by any kind of behavior or virtue or charity, but but merely God's 
uh, decision to accept the soul as righteous for Jesus' sake. And that's the basis for Luther's salvation by faith alone, that God's acceptance is based on the imputation of Christ's righteousness, uh, you know, the, the dunghill covered with snow analogy, rather than some kind of intrinsic change within the believer. In, in the commentary on Galatians, Luther once wrote that God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. That's an exact quote from Luther's commentary on Galatians. God never smiled on a man for his charity or virtues. That's really fundamentally what's at issue between the Catholic and the Protestant. Um, is righteousness the righteousness that matters, the righteousness that really establishes us as accepted by God, merely this this imputed righteousness for Christ's sake alone that Luther talked about, or are we accepted by God because of some intrinsic change in our character, divinization, as Peter would call it, or, or sanctifying grace, according to the Roman Catholics? Is that the basis of God's acceptance? Now, whatever we do with Lutheran James, whatever we do with the rest of the tradition, one thing remains clear, and that is that the Lutheran interpretation of Paul is a novelty in, in Christian history. And before the 16th century, nobody anywhere, east, west, north, south, Syrian, Greek, Coptic, you know, Byzantine, Roman, Latin, you name it, nobody, nobody in the history of Christian tradition ever interpreted Paul the way Luther interpreted him. And that's not my conclusion. That's the conclusion of good Protestant historians like Alistair McGrath in his two-volume history of justification, Justitia Dei, which I recommend you read. Um, and uh, furthermore, it's the conclusion of Lutheran scholars of St. Paul. So I, I highly recommend the book Paul Among Jews and Gentiles by Christer Stendhal, Lutheran professor at Harvard University uh, Divinity School, or his commentary on Romans, um, and other Protestant scholars like N.T. Wright, E.P., Sanders, James, Don, uh, and so forth, right? Now, all of them come to the conclusion that Luther's understanding of Paul is uh, is uh, radically discontinuous with the tradition, is is a novelty that emerged in his peculiar location in in Saxony in the early 16th century, and uh, and ultimately doesn't reflect the mind of the apostle. The reason I think Luther and Paul agree is both of them agree that active righteousness, that a change of character brought about by the grace of the Holy Spirit is what establishes us as righteous before God. Paul said it himself in Romans 2.13, it's not hearing the law, it's obeying the law by which a man will be declared righteous. The works in question, right, are not, are not good moral behaviors. They are, in fact, for Paul, those things that characterize Jews as opposed to Gentiles. And that's why they don't justify, because they don't touch the heart in the way that the grace of the Holy Spirit does. Matthew J. Thomas's dissertation, Paul's works of the law in second century reception, uh, excellent um, uh, demonstration of that thesis. Rick, thanks so much for your call. Keep listening to Covenant Radio. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. Looking forward to our next visit, hopefully tomorrow, right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great day, and God bless.